we are, we're in this series called Heretic, and we frame this series around a few big questions. And they're questions that we want you to continue to wrestle with. And if you haven't been watching or you have no idea what this is about, then all of it's online. You could catch up. The first was this, what's something that has shifted in your beliefs, mainly about faith over the years? And we talked about that in many ways. We could all name something that has shifted. I used to think this, but now I believe this. I don't know about this anymore. I don't believe that anymore. All those kinds of things. For some of us, those shifts are small. For some of us, those shifts are big significant. And I bet you know some people that are in one of those two categories as well. And so it's not just personal for you. It's not just your stuff that you're thinking about. You're thinking about your kids or your grandkids or somebody that you know, somebody you work with. They are, they've gone through a, a crisis of faith. And this kind of stuff, this shifting makes us nervous and anxious. And it shouldn't. There's no need for it because it happens really, really often through this series. That was the first question. The, the second question was this. What is the belief about faith that you hold with certainty? And our hope is that you could name a few things that you would say, you know, this is, I'm pretty sure of this. I've always been sure of this. This really hasn't changed for me at all, but I hold it with some certainty. And it might be as broad and as big as God exists and as minute and detailed as something very specific, a conviction that you hold. But I bet, I bet you hold some beliefs with a high degree of certainty. And that's good. You should. Certainty is sometimes very, very helpful, especially going through difficult times. But then we kind of stumbled on a new category that we've talked about for a couple of weeks. What is a belief about faith that you have, and it seems to be true? And at first, this feels a little wishy-washy. It feels like it doesn't even, shouldn't be a question in church. Either we have them or we don't have them. You know, we either have these convictions or we're, we're just totally leaving that alone. But it's this little middle category, if you will, that allows the shift in the book of Acts that we've talked about for several weeks now to happen. Without this sort of holding faith a little bit loosely, but still holding it, and saying, I, you know, I, I think, I think it seems to me to be true, without this middle category, we wouldn't be in the church. Gentiles would have never made it in. Or the requirements would have been so high that like three of you would have made it in. It, faith would not have shifted the way it did if there wasn't this sort of middle place where our hands are open and yet we hold it. We hold it. And it's this place that helps us understand. In fact, we got this phrase from the book of Acts, Acts 15, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit in us. And they it's all about the Gentiles coming into the church, big faith shift. This is how it connects, of course. If you're going through a faith shift, there's patterns in Scripture that can help you learn how to navigate those. And one of them is in Acts, the biggest. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. This is a letter from the church leaders of the first century that they wrote to the Gentiles that were being welcomed in or maybe being held at bay in church life. And the few requirements that they laid down, they weren't things like, you know, Jesus' summary of the law. They were kind of weird ones. You have to read it to know. But they even relaxed those not too many years after this was written. And it's a good thing that they understood that it kind of seemed good. You know, we're going to hold it loosely because those things change pretty quickly. In fact, we don't live by those things at all that are listed in Acts 15. And so it's that third category. And we talked about this transition in Acts 15. It led us to understanding what happens with Peter in Acts 10. Peter, the follower of Jesus, 
preached on Pentecost. He helped the church become born. He has a vision about, oh, 10 years after the ascension of Jesus. The church was almost all completely Jewish, but then Peter, one day on a rooftop, he's hungry, somebody's cooking lunch, his stomach is rumbling. Somebody allows Peter to have this moment alone on the roof, and he has a vision. And we know a little bit about the vision. A sheet drops down. you got to read it. It's a whole sermon about it. Animals are in the sheet, and he hears a voice, all, all kinds of animals. He hears a voice, and the voice says, Peter, get up. Remember what it says? Yeah, kill and eat, right? And so Peter, of course, hears this voice and sees all the animals, which were unclean animals, uh, impure animals for any Jewish individual. And Peter says, surely, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything, what? Impure or unclean. So this story in Acts 10 is all about two people, Peter and Cornelius, and this vision happens. Peter says, never, I I would never. And then God comes back to Peter. You remember what he says? The voice spoke to him a second time and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And in this moment, Peter has a change of heart. And it takes a couple days and he has a journey and he's going to go meet this man named Cornelius who is a Gentile that God is using Cornelius to bring him into the church and And then Peter makes this incredible statement, this incredible statement in Acts chapter 10. And he says this, but God, just just really these, these two last lines, but God has shown me that I should not call what? Anyone, anyone, impure or unclean. Now, this statement is a, I can't overemphasize the, the gravity and the depth, the extension, how large this statement is that Peter makes. It's a really, really big deal. And so he meets Cornelius and the whole thing happens. Leads to Acts 15 and Gentiles coming into the church. But this story in Acts 10 and Acts 15, it really isn't about Peter and Cornelius. It's about a whole other thing. In fact, we won't call it Peter and Cornelius. We'll call it clean and unclean. That's what it's about. This is really the the big idea that is happening here. These ideas of clean and unclean, they're not common to us, but clean and unclean, this is the central idea that decides how Jewish men and women operate all throughout history up until the first century and even today. In one of the earlier sermons in this, I told you about my professor from Regis. He has two kitchens and two dishwashers. It's all about clean and unclean. It's all about living a kosher life. It's all about observing the purity rites that are in not just the Torah, the Old Testament, but many other Jewish writings and part of many, many Jewish traditions. The sum totality of Jewish behavior is around these two ideas. It's fundamental. It is who Peter was. It was in his DNA. And it was theological. It's how God operates with us, clean and unclean. And it is practical. It tells you what you can do, where you can go, what you can eat, when you can eat it, who you can be with. All of these things. And most importantly, it tells you who is in and who is out. And this was foundational to what it meant to be Jewish. What it means is this, this idea of clean and unclean. We could say so much about it, but this is the the big idea. Uh, Whatever or whoever 
is unclean, overtakes and corrupts anything that is clean. This is the the basic idea in principle. That if you are clean or ritually purified or distant from things that are impure or unclean and you stay away from all things that are impure or unclean, that's great, you stay clean. This was the foundation of all of the rituals and purity laws. If, however, you came in contact with someone or something that was unclean, you then became unclean as well. So when Peter says to Cornelius, he walks into his house, maybe you remember this statement. He walks into his house and says, it it is unlawful for a Jew to even associate with a Gentile. Remember that? And it's not really. It doesn't say that in the Bible anywhere. It doesn't say that anywhere. But it does teach you what it means to stay clean in a very unclean world. And if you're Jewish and you walk into a Gentile house, I mean, the odds of you becoming unclean, they're just massive. It's, it's almost a certainty that you would then have to go through the process of becoming ritually purified and become clean again. Now, we don't use these words. We didn't grow up in this culture. This is not part of our world And yet it is. We just use different words than clean and unclean. We use words that are like this. Holy and unholy. Good and bad. Right and wrong. The kinds of friends you don't want your kids to have over here, they're unclean. You would never say that, of course, right? You would just say, you don't want to hang around that sort. And then the kids that you think is going to, well, they they might keep your kids on the straight and narrow. Because your kid might be one of these, you just don't know yet. (laughs) Right? And we also use words like this, truth and heresy. And so throughout history, what has been done with people that they thought should be set aside, people that are teaching heresy, well, they get rid of them. Sometimes they ostracize them or put them on house arrest like they did with Galileo. Sometimes they, what? Kill them, right? Why? Well, because what happens when clean and unclean touch? The whole mess becomes what? Unclean. That's right. This is why faith shifts are so hard for us. It's why it's hard for us, and it's why it's hard for others. Because when we shift in our faith, there's this sense that there is so much at stake. This is why Peter walks into Cornelius' house. It's such a step of bravery for him. This is why when you associate with somebody that you think, I don't know, I mean, maybe, you know, it's a step of bravery for you. When maybe you lean into your doubt and you say, you know what, I've even been afraid to give voice to it. I think I'm going to admit that I'm not sure about some things. Massive courage, spiritually speaking, when you do that. Because so much is at stake with clean and unclean. And even though this is distinctly Jewish, it is a part of our life and our world, and we know it. We know it. I mean, if your hands are clean and you stick them in the dirt, the dirt doesn't become clean. You instinctively know that this creates a problem. And so, when this idea is central in our faith, in our culture, it's very confusing to us when Jesus communicates to us in his life, in his ministry, that we have this backwards. We 
have this backwards. In fact, Jesus taught and lived something very different than this. I know you, you feel like this is right out of the Old Testament, but it's not. You might understand the Torah to be this way, but it's not. In fact, Jesus comes and makes it very clear. In fact, some would say that the whole point of all of the Gospels is to undo this idea in spiritual circles. That the whole point of everything Jesus taught was to help us unlearn this and learn something else, maybe for the first time. If you read the Gospels with this idea in mind, then you'll see it on almost every page, every interaction, every incident, in almost every relationship. Jesus wants you to know that this is backwards. So when Peter hears with the sheet and the vision, and when Peter shows up in Acts 15 and he has this idea, all of those seeds were planted in his three years with Jesus. Every one of those ideas he had seen practiced and taught and lived out in the three years that he spent walking with Jesus, every interaction that he had. And so even if you just pick any gospel, open it up and read a page, you'll see it. This is backwards. Let me show you a couple examples. And then I'm gonna give you a few concluding thoughts for the whole series and we'll wrap it up. When Mark begins to tell the gospel of Jesus, the very beginning of his book, it's, all, it's in chapter one. I mean, he, he, he just skips past the birth stuff and just jumps right in. He begins to tell this story. There was a man with leprosy came, knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. And the man says this, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me what? There it is. And this is all through the Gospels. This man was unclean because he had a skin disease. And it is a good thing that there are rules and regulations around people who have this disease, first century known as leprosy. We, We understand it differently today, but it's the same disease and it still exists and it's still out there and it is communicable. It is contagious in some ways. And so he looks at Jesus and says, I want you to know if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Now, there was an entire process that, required, that was required for this man to become clean. He had to go through a healing phase. He had to go through a clean phase, no evidence of the disease. And he had to go show himself to a priest and go through a purification rite. It was a whole process, an incredible thing. And this is what Jesus does. And what he does for a rabbi and for a Jewish man in the first century is unthinkable. This is what he does. Move with compassion. Jesus reached out and did what? Jesus crosses a barrier with this man and defiles himself on purpose. Defiles, not a word we use every day either, is it? But he moves into unclean territory. Now Jesus is dirty. Now Jesus is unholy. He touched this man. I mean, this man lives in a separate colony. He lives with people that are just like him, lepers. He is socially isolated. He is economically isolated. He is isolated from his family. He has no connection except to other people that are just like him, unclean. And he gets close enough to Jesus to holler out at him. And Jesus moves toward him, many steps probably, and reaches out to him and he touches him. In that moment, Jesus becomes ritually, in terms of the Ritual rites, the purification rites, unclean. According to everyone watching, Jesus is now unclean. 
but he's not. In fact, Jesus moved with compassion. He touches him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was what? And he was clean. In fact, Jesus followed up by saying this. Hey, here's the deal. I want you to go and go through the rites and, you know, go through the Jewish hoops, if you will, so that everybody will know that you're clean and you can go back to your family. You can go back to work. You can go do your thing. Jesus is not unclean. He's not unclean. Normally, in every other Jewish community and society, first century life, and prior to that, cleansing happens first and then touch. But not with Jesus. With Jesus, touch happens. And he does this again and again and again. In the very next chapter, Jesus calls a man to be his disciple. His name's Levi. We know him as Matthew. What was Matthew? What was his job? He's a tax collector. He was a Jewish man, but he was pretty unclean because he hung out with unclean sorts and some pretty, well, I'll, I'll show you what uh, Mark calls them in his scriptures. But this is his group of friends and, and Matthew or Levi, he has a, a gathering in his house, a, a party probably, a dinner, and he wants Jesus to meet all of his friends. And this is how Mark describes it. He says this, later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other Say it with me. You ready? Disreputable sinners. That's good. You said that with some energy. I liked it. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. They were together in Matthew's home, and they were eating together. Now, you know what a big deal that is. We talk about it every time we have communion, that there was a, a, a place of table fellowship and the Jewish idea of table fellowship, if we sit down to dinner, it means that you and me, we're together. We're in this together. I like you, you like me. We have same heart, same mind. Doesn't mean we agree on everything, but you're family to me. That's what happens when we take communion together. We're family together. And Jesus walks into Matthew's home, along with all of these disreputable sinners and, of course, the Pharisees have some things to say about that. But when the teachers of religious law, Pharisees, uh, these were, I mean, we, we paint them to be such bad guys. They really aren't. They're just trying to live according to their understanding of faith. That's all they're trying to do. They saw him eating with tax collectors. Now, think clean and unclean, okay? Don't think, you know, good people, bad people, but think clean and unclean. This is what they're wanting, and they know that Jesus is a rabbi, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such what? It's a great word. It's probably the most accurate translation of that Greek word. Why does he hang around people just like this? And you can hear it. There's, there's clean and there's unclean. And what's happening with Jesus is, is he's getting around unclean, and that's going to make him unclean. That's the only thing that can happen. That's the only thing that can occur. And so, whatever or whoever is unclean, overtakes and corrupts anything that is clean. And this is our mindset. It's our mindset when it comes to business associates or friends. or It's our mindset when it comes to beliefs or political ideas. But Jesus shows us over, it was just two examples. I can give you a two dozen. Jesus shows us over and over and over again that we have this backwards. And the shift that happens in the book of Acts 
happens because of this teaching, example, life, ministry, relationships that Jesus has over and over and over again. And so if this is backwards, what's true? What's this? Whatever or whoever is clean purifies and sanctifies anything that is unclean. And this changes the world. It changes everything. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, it did for Jesus. I'm not Jesus. We know that. You're not Jesus. But it did so for Peter. It did so for James. It did so for John. It did so for anybody who walks with Christ. Jesus said to the disciples, you're going to do what I've been doing, and you're going to do things that are even greater than I've been doing. This is who Jesus says that we are. And what that means is, is that anything that is clean, whoever or whatever, the purity laws are reversed. And our understanding of this, it determines how we engage in shifts in faith. It determines how we engage in relationships with other people. It determines what our priorities are. It determines what we think makes us pleasing or acceptable to God. It means that if you call Jesus yours, that he has, in fact, touched you and made you clean inside and out. You say, well, yeah, I mean, if you knew what I thought. No, he knows what you think. If you knew what I've done, he knows too. He knows. This is the way of Jesus. This is what it means to follow him. And this is why Peter said it so plainly. And this verse that we've talked about through this series, and I just want to show you, ought to offend all of us in our sensibilities and how we understand relationships. So then Peter, after his, after his experience with Cornelius, and he says this, but God has shown me that I should not call, who? Anyone, impure or unclean. Anyone but God. But God has shown me. And so whatever shift in faith that you're making my hope is that this represents it. This moves you to a good place. So with that in mind, let's talk about the whole of the series a bit. And let me give you a couple ideas before we wrap up, okay? Um, we've talked about these two questions. What's something that has shifted in your beliefs over the years? And what is a belief about faith that you hold with certainty? And so you need to know this, and you already know this, that these shifts have already happened in your life. There's already been some things that you've decided you don't believe or you do believe. And you've changed and you've morphed, you've evolved, you've grown, hopefully toward a better understanding of who God is and how deep and wide his love is. That's our hope, that our theology matches God's heart. That's what we want. And so we want those shifts to happen. They've happened and they will happen in the future, for sure. And we hope that you hold some things with certainty. But if these shifts are gonna happen and you're gonna move through them without anxiety, or if your kids are going to go through periods or times of unbelief, your grandkids are going to wander, somebody in your life that you know that you love dearly says, well, I don't want anything to do with any of that anymore, all of that stuff is going to create anxiety unless you've made some room here in the middle. This seems to be true place. And what we want to do is be in a place where this space in your life, in your theology, and in your heart is just a little bit bigger. That's all. Just a little more room. Only 
Because when there is room in this middle space, then your relationships with people deepen. You've moved away from clean and unclean thinking. You've moved away from heresy and truth thinking. Because the odds of you and I being 100% right about everything we think right now, well, they're pretty small. And so when those shifts happen, they can only happen with some of these things that are in this middle space where we say, you know, I don't know, I'm pretty sure, I wouldn't call it certain, I haven't shifted from it yet, but it seems to be true. And so we hold it right here, just the way the apostles did and the church leaders in the first century. And if you can do that, live that way, and you interact with somebody who thinks differently than you do theologically, or about other things, everything's theological, but about many other topics and issues, social stuff, economic stuff, you name it then you have space for them. And space allows love to grow. So that is what we want you to do. Make some space. The way they did in the early church, which ultimately made space for me and you. And then one other thought I want you to leave with is this. Do not fear. Shifts in faith can be anxiety driving. It can create uncertainty. It can make you feel like you're different or like you don't belong. I love what Jesus says in Luke 12. He says, so do not be afraid, little flock. Isn't that nice? Do not be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Do not fear. When Jesus is talking to Peter and he's asking this question, who do people say that I am? And and they have a little chat about that. And then he says to Peter, and really all of them, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives him an answer. He says, well, we believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You, we believe you're the one. And then Jesus makes it very clear. He says, Peter, you're right. And on that confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will build his church. A culture shift isn't going to hurt the church. A shift in this or a shift in that. My beliefs, your beliefs, the things that we think hold just tightly and we can't hold them loosely. Jesus said, I'll build the church. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. What's your job? Do you know what your job is? To love. To love. And if you can love... And God does his thing in the background and he builds it. Nothing will stop it. Historically, crusades didn't stop it. World wars didn't stop it. We can trust that God is at the helm and Jesus will do his thing. And the kingdom will come. It gives the Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. It's a beautiful thing. So you have a wayward child? Don't fear. Don't fear. God's got him. Love, love. You're not sure about something that has plagued you with doubt because you can't square the facts with what scripture says? Don't, don't, don't be afraid. Fear will not help you. Just like the flight attendant said, right? We're gonna shut the door, we're gonna take off. You can grip the seat with fear or relax. It's all up to you. So you might as well trust God in the middle of it. So, do not fear. <laughs> Make friends with a heretic. Find some people that think differently than you do, believe differently than you do. Build bridges, not walls. 
Let love be the order of the day. Ask the question, who am I likely to call unclean and feel distant from? That's the place where God wants to work on your heart. Where am I likely to see divisions and walls instead of collective understanding of what it means to be in this large group of humanity together? When that happens in your heart, God is at work. Love flows freely. And then God does his best work through your listening, your compassion, and you'll reach out and you'll touch. You won't be thinking clean or unclean or distant or better than or prideful or arrogance. You'll be thinking humble, serving love. When you ask those questions, God's in the center of it, I promise. Let me guide you through a prayer. Lord, we, uh, we come to you today because we need you. We desperately need you. We need your touch every day. So if it's true that what Jesus did made all things that were unclean, clean, if he touches us with his compassion and love and makes us clean as well, Lord, our hope and prayer is that you would do that for us right now. Help us to love, help us to set aside all of the things that build us up in arrogance and pride. Help us to approach those that feel differently, think differently, live differently than us with an open hand, a curious heart, and a desire to, to build your kingdom, to know you more fully. Lord, when we read the Gospels, we have this sense that if we were to be a bit more like Jesus, that maybe our friends would be a bit more colorful, a bit more interesting. Maybe the kind of folks that uh, some of our, our work associates might cast a, a wary eye toward. Lord, uh, protect us from always being around people that think like us, vote like us, act like us. Lord, bring people into our path that will stretch our thinking. Test our limits of love and allow us to experience your grace in more full ways. Lord, we believe that your love is the thing that stays center stage in our heart, that it will, in fact, not just change us, but it will change the world. Help us to love like that. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say together, amen.